0: G'day you absolute first class legends. Welcome to the Talking Chang podcast episode four. Uh, I'm in my new house. It's 2019. It is a very large room so I've got a bit of an echo problem uh, which I need to sort out, do some soundproofing or something. I've put a rug down but we've got a few more things to do so bear with me with the sound. But other than that we have in this episode we have Craig Richards. Now Craig is the CEO of the Bicycle Network, he's a seasoned veteran in the cycling world, he's been doing this for well over 10 years, uh, not as the CEO but he sort of worked his way through in the Bicycle Network up to the up to the head honcho's position and uh, Craig is an avid cyclist, he is a commuter, we talk about all things cycling, this is a cycling podcast essentially and uh, we discuss some interesting topics so I hope you guys enjoy this, let's cut straight to the chase. And uh, I'll see you in the next episode. I've been looking forward to this chat because there's a lot of topics that we want to cover. Uh, there's a lot of things that, you know, mandatory helmet laws and things like that that I want to discuss with you. And uh, and the different angles, the different opinions on it. Um, look, we might as well just talk about your background first and then we'll go into to that stuff. You, uh, you've you been at the Bicycle Network for what? Eleven Almost years. an eternity.
1: Eleven years. Long service leave. It's almost unheard of in this day and age. I don't know if I'll ever get to take it, but uh, it's kind of nice to
0: know. Yeah. So long service – what, have you taken your long service yet? <laughs> no. You <laughs> too haven't taken busy, it. Too much to do. That's three, three months' pay, mate. I, I'd be bloody going to Italy.
1: I know. It's incredible too. I, I'd love to. Um but, yeah, no, unfortunately, too, I've got a lot of other holidays. There's so much to do in this bike world, I can't get through my normal holidays, let alone think about long service leave. But, yeah.
0: yeah, it's just incredible. So you say there's a lot lot to do in the bike world. What, What is it that you do on the daily as CEO of the Bicycle Network? And, I mean, really, what is the Bicycle Network? Yeah,
1: look, our, our job is to make it easier for everyone to ride a bike every day. So we've got this goal that we're trying to do. We're trying to – like all not-for-profits, your actual job is – how do you do yourself out of business? What's the problem? How do you solve the problem and move on? Now, the problem we see as the big problem is this thing called physical inactivity, where just not enough people get enough physical activity. And that has a huge implications for their health. So our job is to get people physically active. The big thing is, how are you going to do that? What's the way to get people to get enough physical activity? Because the interesting thing is, you've got to do five sets of physical activity a week. There's lots of people who actually exercise fairly seriously a lot of people who are riding their bike you know they go out on the weekend one day and they punch out 100 kilometers and then they go for two rides um, during the week they don't get enough physical activity to meet the guidelines so what we're really trying to do is mean that if you ride a bike every day of your life just to get yourself around um, then you'll get enough physical activity so that's our job that's what we're trying to do
0: yeah yeah you know uh i suppose you're trying to do it with a with a cycling sort of aspect you could just about have a CrossFit network and you know really it's is it just any sort of activity going to the gym
1: well look you could I mean reality if someone went to the gym five days a week honestly I say well that's not my problem they're getting enough physical activity but people don't go to the gym five days a week people start F45 they don't continue it no disrespect to F45 great stuff everyone's having a great time but do you reckon in 10 years time people are still going to be doing F45 five days a week yeah they're probably not They'll get busy, they'll have kids, they'll change jobs, they'll drop off. So what we try and do is build physical activity into people's lives and the great thing about bike riding is once it's part of your life, it's just something you do, you don't think about it. How are you going to get around? How are you going to get to the shops? How are you going to get to work? How are you going to get to school? You just jump on your bike and off you go and that way you've got your physical activity without it being something you have to go. I need to think about this. I need to work out how to do it. You know, and people come home from work and say, oh, I'm too tired. I'm not going to get up early in the morning. So we just build it into people's lives.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I can see the point. I mean, commuting is probably one of the best ways to get people because they're, they're killing two birds with one stone. They're going to work and they're, and they're commuting on a bike. The problem that we've got, two problems that we've got, I suppose, holding people back is Melbourne, the weather. <laughs> the weather, the weather in Melbourne. You'd have to be a sort of hardcore commu- hard commuter, wouldn't you?
1: Oh, not really. I mean, people say that about the weather, but, you know, we see – and we all look to Europe in many ways because it's a thing everyone loves and talks about, and you look at what they do over there. It's – they're in, say, Denmark or, you know, in Copenhagen where they ride a lot, obviously, and, you know, they get their commuting numbers are up around 50% of people are getting to work on their bike. They're doing it in the snow. I mean – it just spins my mind like i've actually never been in a situation where it's been minus 20 degrees i don't even actually know if i've ever been somewhere where it's been minus degrees but you know when it's minus something they just start they just keep riding so there's that old saying that there's no such thing as bad weather there's just bad clothing
0: this is true this is true yeah uh, you you do need obviously warm clothes the other problem is you you heat up pretty quickly and then you start stripping clothes off but you know just talking about copenhagen you look at places like that where there's so many cyclists on the road going to and from work and Hannah and I had an insight into this when we went to to Amsterdam. We, I just couldn't believe how many people were riding bicycles last year and um, why don't we have this, this here in Melbourne? Yeah we have little pockets of it which is kind of interesting like
1: I, I ride to work through the northern suburbs and there's some places there when people see them, they're kind of stunned. Like you know, you go down Canning Street, which has been one of the long-standing bike streets, and sometimes at the traffic lights there in peak hour, you you'll be in a group of 30, 40 bike riders wanting to get through the traffic lights. Yeah, and people who see that go, I just it blows their mind a little bit because what we see with these bike riding lot with a lot of things, once others start doing it, your neighbours do it, everyone does it, it just becomes a normal thing. So like we see these little pockets, as I say, northern suburbs of. Melbourne is one where a lot of people are riding their bikes. People have got bikes on all their balconies. Um, So we're seeing it starting to spread, but we've still got a long way to go. And no doubt the biggest thing that holds people back is places to ride. You know, they want to have places to ride where they feel comfortable and they want to have a place where they feel they're not going to have an interaction with a vehicle or a person driving a vehicle. That's going to be an unpleasant one.
0: Yeah. What's the biggest thing stopping people from, you know, across the board in Melbourne I mean, we see the traffic is just getting horrendous. I mean, I drive. I, I'm a cyclist, but I also drive to and from work. And I cannot believe that in the last 10 years how bad the traffic is getting. And uh, I often wonder why people don't just ride to work. Because, I mean, I'm different. I'm a sales rep, so I'm sort of out on the road and I have to mm-hmm. go from location to location all around the, the CBD. But there's a lot of people just going into work and coming out of work from the city.
1: Yep. Yeah, the biggest thing that just stops them is it's this concern where we have this group of people and it's been found around the world that roughly 60 percent of people are called the interested but concerned they're interested in riding a bike but they're concerned and they're concerned that they might get hit by a car that's what's worrying them so if we can overcome the concern people will start riding and we know that when we whenever you provide good places to ride the numbers of people riding bikes just goes up um But, of course, the problem we've got with a lot of around Melbourne, we've got lots of good bits of bike infrastructure, as we do in a lot of Australian cities, but the gaps between them cause a problem. There's another old saying that your bike commutes only as good as the worst piece of infrastructure. So you might have a beautiful separated piece of infrastructure you're riding along and then suddenly, you know, whether it's 500 metres or whether it's two kilometres, you ride in the thick of it and then you're stuck in amongst a lot of cars and it might be trams and the whole thing and people go, I don't want a piece of that. So that's what we need to overcome. We need to provide end-to-end solutions for people to ride their bikes. And that's what we try and do. Mm. So we do a lot of work with the government to try and say, hey, this is what we need to do. We need to provide these conditions and these facilities and that will get more people riding bikes. And, of course, that will make them fitter and healthier, but it will help solve this congestion problem as well.
0: Yeah. Is it infrastructure? Is is that the big problem? Uh, or is it attitudes of drivers?
1: The biggest thing I... It, Look, I say it's all the pieces put together that are important Um, and that's one thing I I reckon I've seen in the bike world which has been kind of interesting. People think there's one silver bullet. There's not one silver bullet. You need all the bits right for it to work. Um, No doubt infrastructure is an important one, but if you have bad attitudes from people driving cars, that's a problem as well. You need to get all the pieces together, but infrastructure is and we call it places to ride rather than infrastructure because it's a bit of a techie sort of, you know, term. Um, good places to ride certainly makes a massive difference and that's the one that most people in the bike world pretty much agree with. Now, we know we need these places to ride and it's certainly a big start, but there's lots of other pieces as well and sometimes we talk about there's the hardware and the software and you put the you need to put the two together to get it all to work. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I've always thought that it's uh, helmets are, are, are a, uh, a big problem you know like even on my youtube channel for years i've been uh, i'd go to the cafe and i'd sort of ride down to the cafe with me holding the camera you know vlogging away and then i'd get people in the comments say where's your helmet you know <laughs> and yet the funny thing about it is you, you look at any photo you just all you have to do is google copenhagen or amsterdam and you look at any of thousands of cyclists riding to and from work and there's not a helmet in sight right so whilst i am a, a big advocate for helmet in certain uh, helmets in certain situations you know racing bikes for example uh anywhere where you're traveling at speed you know i think going down to the cafe without a helmet is a pretty reasonable thing to do and i'm pretty sure that there's no evidence to show that you know there's more helmet there's more head injuries in copenhagen than there is you know what i'm saying
1: yeah look and we've just been through our big review of mandatory helmet laws because they've been in Australia now for a long time, since 1990, um, and it's just become very much amongst big sections of the Australian public just accepted and they shake their head and think, how could you ever think of doing this activity without having a helmet on? But as you say, what they see, they see people who are riding their bikes generally on main roads, in lycra, at speed, and that's what they associate it with. They don't associate it with this great other huge number of people who are riding their bikes at low speed in circumstances where they're not mixing with vehicles. So interestingly, as you say, the rest of the world didn't follow Australia's lead when it comes to mandatory helmet laws. Um, You would have probably thought back in 1990, yeah, the rest of the world will go this way and this is what will happen because we've become a, um, what I'd call a pretty conservative world. You know, we're pretty much...
0: We're a bit of a nanny state, Australia, aren't we?
1: uh, Oh, it's very interesting, you know, like... At times I'd like to think I was clever enough to be a, um, you know, sort of study history or something and think, how did we go from convicts? You know, we started this sort of convicts place where we didn't like authority to now we're very much lots of people saying no. More authority, more laws, more regulations, more things, control people. Um, But, you know, we bring it back to bikes. And the key to the bike is it should just be easy. Should yep. just be able to hop on your bike and pedal away. Yep. It shouldn't be complicated. The more things you make it complicated, as in, oh, I'm going to get on my bike and now I'm going to need a helmet. I'm going to need to get this. I'm going to, you know, people say oh, you should get a registration. Other people say, oh, you should have to wear a green jacket. You know, you should have to get an orange flag. That was came up in the states once. Some state wanted to make it compulsory to have an orange flag on the back of your bike. You know, the more things you say, you need to, to make it. It just gets harder and harder, and people go, "I just can't be bothered." Because you should be able to. When it comes to get on your bike, you should be able to just say, "Oh, where do I need to go? I need to go here. There's a bike. I'm on. I'm away." Um, and you know, people liken it to things in cars. But when you get in your car, all you need is the key. You don't need anything else but a key. All the stuff's already in the car. The lights are in the car. The seat belts in the car. All this equipment. It's not like you've got to go out and make a a specific effort to make this happen and that's one of the things that you know when it comes to helmets it's just one more barrier in the way um and it does make people worry too because they look at a helmet and think "Jesus, this activity is so dangerous that i i can't do it without a helmet um when the reality is the danger is not that great
0: yeah it's uh, i mean look I, i've been riding i'm sure you've been riding bikes for a long time i've been riding bikes for ne- nearly 30 years and and and, racing. and uh, I can count on one hand the amount of times I've crashed and particularly going down to, to the shop. Do you know, it's uh, – <laughs> so, you know, it just makes sense that the, the, the laws should be – I mean, my stance is the laws should be laxed for adults uh, travelling just casually around on their bicycle. If you're going to ride your bike in a race or any sort of fast peloton, you know, group rides in the morning – Definitely wear a helmet. That's the smart thing to do because, you know, there's been multiple occasions where I've, I've caved in the, the back of my helmet from a crash and I've destroyed it. Mm. But I think just going down to the cafe, I think it should be pretty relaxed. And I think particularly closer to the CBD, it definitely should be more relaxed.
1: Yeah, and look, we certainly see in other places of Australia, the beach culture is a very interesting part of it. You know, I was up at um, Gold Coast for Christmas Last year, um, my parents live up there, and I spent a bit of time around Barely Heads, and it was just interesting to see that culture. People on cruiser bikes, shared paths, going pretty slowly on their bike, you know, less than ten k's, cruising around. They of a lot of them weren't wearing helmets. No one seemed to care, um, and it all seemed to just be fine. Yeah. Um, they weren't coming off. They're you know they're wearing. They're going down to the beach. They don't want a whole lot of gear when you get to the beach. You know. They don't even have a tower. They just want to be able to get off their bike, hop in, have a quick swim. Um, so, yeah, you certainly see that part of it, that um, it's a lifestyle thing. And when you see that, bikes become this lifestyle. and they become a fashion item and a normal thing that just everyone does, then more people start to ride. And that's what brings that real bike culture, which is great to see.
0: Yeah. You know, it's it's funny you mention the fashion side of things as well because, <laughs> because people are, are pretty – They're they're pretty, um, you know, pretty material like that. You know, I mean, a helmet, it doesn't look pretty, you know. And so that can be the one thing that stops people getting on the bike, really. Particularly, like you say, going to the beach. Yeah, it could be. I mean, we see the bike fashion statement. It's quite
1: incredible, the link, actually. You know, you look at all sorts of ads and fashion ads and all sorts of things. And so often the bike is used as this sort of lifestyle prop. Um, You see it on the top of cars. You go into a car dealership and there's a bike on the roof of the car to try and sell a car. It's kind of interesting. You never go into a um, bike shop and see a… So
0: true. That's happening in the last few years.
1: Yeah, you never see a car underneath a bike in the bike shop trying to sell a bike. But you see it this way. It's sort of this real lifestyle thing that um, people see a bike and they think about it. And why that is, is I think when it comes down to why bikes are so attractive, it equals freedom. You get on the bike and you're free and you go and you feel pretty free because you feel the, the wind around you and all that sort of thing. So that's why it's so attractive to people. They see a bike, they feel freedom, and people try and trade off that and, in fashion as well, which is a good thing because it just means people look at bikes and people have a fond memory. You know, when they think about when they rode a bike as a kid or they rode it in some special place or something like that. Like lots of people have a place where they rode a bike and they think, God, I always remember that moment. So I'm sure you've got one. Like, is is there some place where you went in the world where you just went, that time I rode a bike was unbelievable? Like, have you got one of those?
0: (laughs) Yeah, look, I've got multiple situations, you know, where I've I've travelled, particularly through Southeast Asia, and you rock up with your bike. I mean, you know, I did a couple of um, tours over there in Southeast Asia, and... uh, you know, you rock up with your bike and the best way to discover a new city is to just jump on the bike and ride. But the funny thing about Asian uh, or Southeast Asian countries or Asian countries in general is they don't have this regulation like Western countries do. And so, you know, you can, I mean, you can just jump on your bike and ride. Yeah, you don't yeah. have to. If you want to wear a helmet, no one gives a shit. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and this is what I like about Southeast Asia and Asian, and Asian countries in general is that that it is a more relaxed approach to their rules and regulations, and uh, and I find it very frustrating in Australia how you know you can't even cross the line. I mean, you cross if you cross the line at a set of traffic lights, you know, that big thick white line, and put your nose over, you know, Cobb will, will book your five hundred bucks.
1: Yeah, look, one thing NT is an interesting place. I don't know if you've ever been to NT and had had a look there, and we've done quite a bit of work in particularly in Darwin where they do have a partial helmet law where you don't have to wear a bike helmet on a bike path or on a footpath and when you go there and you see it in operation it all just happens pretty easily and you see the police when they see someone who at times when they're swapping between the footpath and the um, bike path and they do go on the road occasionally without a helmet on the police just don't worry about it you can see them just going we've got bigger fish to fry you know we've got other problems real people to worry about who are doing the wrong thing and they just turn them they go straight past the police if you did that here you go past the police without a helmet on here they'll pull you over and hit you with a pretty big fine
0: yeah i mean look i have had situations where I, i've ridden down the road like i said go to get a coffee and i've gone past the police and i i have found the police pretty pretty relaxed i mean uh i've been past a number of police over my time and um I mean, they can't be bothered really. But in a lot of situations, they will pull you over. I had one cop pull me over once and then realized I was the cycling maven. And then he watches my vlog and he was like, oh, no, see you later, <laughs> mate. Have a good one. <laughs> so well, that was pretty cool. Well, it's paid for itself, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, I, I think in general, the cops are pretty relaxed. But then i I'm absolutely disgusted. When I see three or four cops in the city and they're lining up booking cyclists, just one after the other, for not having a bell on their bike, or minor things like that, or do you know those little stings they do? Yeah, the the bell things
1: are—it's ridiculous. Like, yeah, what you're going to find someone for not having a bell? And uh, people think uh, the—I hear that too—and I'm, as you could probably gather, I'm fairly relaxed about it. And people think the bell's going to save you. Yeah, well, anyone that knows when you really need to break hard, you don't have time to be stuffing around with your bell.
0: You know? Well, well, let's talk about the background. Why, why, why? Who comes to making these decisions for a start? They're clearly not cyclists, right? They're just some old fuddy-duddy, you know, who's been passed closely on a path, I reckon, and they just happen to work in a, in a position of power. But you know. I often think, what's the basis? So, for example, if you know, we, we talk about the bells and the helmets, what is the basis? Is there any clinical evidence or is there any evidence to show that wearing helmets in Australia? I know this was introduced in 1990, compulsory helmet laws were introduced in 1991, I think it was, or 1990.
1: Yeah, it was between 90, it happened at different times in different states. That's between 90 and about 92 or 3. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so, what is the what is the evidence? I mean, I haven't seen any... I, I did a, bit, a few hours of research yesterday, actually, and I couldn't find any papers on yeah. this. Oh, there's a lot of papers. There's
1: more academic papers than you, could, you would believe. Okay. And as part of our helmet review, we had someone do a review of the academic papers. There is an extraordinary number. It is unbelievable how much academic rigour and time and effort has been put into this. But in the end, when we reviewed it all... The thing it shows, the one clear thing it does show, which is probably no surprise, that if you do come off your bike and you do hit your head, you're better off with a helmet on than without a helmet on.
0: Yeah. And look, that makes sense. That is, that is 100% a fact, right? And we all agree to that. My concern is what is the evidence versus helmet, helmetless injuries – versus sedentary lifestyle and the people that weren't riding i mean has there been any comparison to that looking at people not riding bikes because of compulsory helmet laws and who are now suffering from diabetes and are a burden on our public health system
1: there's certainly been a lot of efforts to try and do that but look and when we look at this burden on our public health system from physical inactivity it's extraordinary The number of people, like we we do the basic number and it basically works that in Australia, there's one in, out of the whole population, one in six people are going to get, are going to die as a result of not doing enough physical activity at the moment. One in six. One in six. One in six is going to get sick as a result of it and have a pretty unpleasant experience. So one third of people are either going to, as a result of where we currently are with physical activity, either have a heart attack type 2 diabetes, and some kinds of cancers, colon and breast are the most, affected by physical inactivity. It's extraordinary. Um, And not a lot gets done about it in reality. When we look at this preventative health problem, we've seen physical inactivity just keep going up over the years. Um, So it was found out in 1950, funnily enough, that physical inactivity, how bad it is for you, early 50s by a guy called Professor Morris, who was an English professor, and he looked at people on the London buses. Right? And he f- First he looked at the drivers and the conductors, and he found out that the bus driver was twice as likely to die of a heart attack as the conductor, and that's because the conductor was collecting tickets and going up all the stairs all day. And then he looked at postal workers and found out the person who's sorting the mail in the back of the post office is twice as likely to die of a heart attack as the person delivering the mail, of course, did it by bike. So that's when we found out how bad physical inactivity is for you. And we haven't really done a lot about it. There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk about trying to get people to play more sport um, and that hasn't tended to be terribly effective.
0: So as someone who's, you know, on, on the ground uh, with the uh, with local government, you're obviously ta- having conversations with them. Are we going to see, is there any promise, have they shown any promise in relaxing the helmet laws. And I keep bringing it back to helmet, but I, I truly believe that this is a big problem for us in Australia and the number one reason why people aren't getting on bikes. Would you agree
1: with me on that? Uh, I wouldn't say it's number one. You know, like I just say, to me, it's a whole bunch of things you've got to put together. It's all the things that when you bring them together, you know, places to ride, supportive laws, speed of vehicles, there's a whole bunch of stuff that needs to come together to really make a massive change.
0: Yeah. And do you see progress?
1: Um, it's a, <laughs> look, it's a, it's interesting in my in my job. There's times I tear my hair out and go because you know, as you said, I've been at it for eleven years. Times I tear my hair out and think, "Oh, we're getting nowhere. Are we moving at all?" And then there's other days where I go, "We've had a win." You know, you get you get a win and you feel good about it, whether it's something that's going to be built or promised to be built, or a little change here, or something you managed to get rid of that was going to cause a problem. Um, So, yeah, there is progress, but it's nowhere near it should be. We should be going much faster. We we really should. We're still going at a bit of a snail's pace. So. Yeah, there's days I feel really good about it, and there's other days I just go, oh, where are we going? Are we getting anywhere?
0: It would be – your job would be a very frustrating job. Although rewarding, it would be – you know, when you see progress, it would be very frustrating dealing with some of these people. Because I think at the end of the day, cyclists and and people who ride bikes – I don't like to name us cyclists. We're really people who just ride a bike. Yep. Really. Uh, would you agree with that? State? Yeah, that's
1: certainly the language. We, we're very cautious with that language because um, cyclists can be seen as elite and fast and intimidating for some people. You know, interesting, we go back to the Dutcher courses we always do, and they have two different names. They have a, a name for a person who's really what we'd call a cyclist who's in Lycra on a road bike going fast. They call them a wheel runner, wheel runner, which is like a wheel runner. Um, and then for people just riding bikes, they're called a fietsen. Excuse my um, pronunciation there. For anyone that knows Dutch, I'm sure it's appalling you it can speak Dutch. But they have two different names. And, but that's really because people who are cycling is seen as something that is a, a sporty sort of activity and people riding bikes is just people in normal clothes who hop on a bike and ride around, whether it's to the
0: cafe, the beach, the shops,
1: to school, to work, whatever they might be doing.
0: Yeah, yeah. There is, there is a distinction there, isn't there, between the two. And, and, and like I was just saying, we are a minority, Really, I mean, and I think, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but this is partly the reason we get bullied. I mean, we, we can't ride on the road because people get fed up with us on the road and they want to run us over. And then you jump on the footpath or a shared path and you get abused by old people and, you know, people walking on the footpath. So, not that I've got anything against old people, what I'm saying is, you know, it's it's a problem. It does not matter where we ride our bicycles, we're being hammered by somebody. Um, and I often think about this. You know, being the minority, feeling like a minority, um, is probably why. I mean, they do. They okay. Let's let's be straight up here. They talk about uh, you know black people. They say uh, a black man went in and robbed uh, in the, in the states. You know, you see the report comes. There, a black man went in and robbed the the bank or the or the store you know it's always a, a label and the, and the same thing goes with cyclists a cyclist was hit or a cyclist did this and we're sort of pulled into this group and uh, and one thing i find frustrating is when a cyclist you know runs a red light we're all tarnished as a group by that guy's bad behavior yet you see someone driving a car run a red light <coughs> we don't tarnish the whole uh, drivers with this same poor label do you sort of
1: get what I'm yeah I, I do and i know we we're trying to do a lot of work with the media actually in that regard and i know i wrote something about it the other day when i kind of reached my wits end with them when we're saying to them you know it's not a cyclist this is a person you know and particularly it comes around when there's a terrible tragedy and they talk about a cyclist and it's we see it as dehumanizing in many ways um but also one it can dehumanize a person but as you say the other thing it can do um and i, I do toy with this a bit and it does worry me that you know, in the past, I, I guess I say people have always struggled with how do we just dis- with discrimination. You know, people are always looking to, in over a long time, to say who's worse than me so I feel better about myself. And it used to be about religion and race and whether it's the colour of your skin or where you came from or something. A- and now it's because we've pretty much worked out largely, look, that's appalling way to behave. Um, it spills into other areas and it can be now by what. Activities people have, you know, whether they're riding a bike. So we suddenly you get this group of people say, "I hate people that ride a bike. I hate people who are cyclists." And you think, why would you hate people who are cyclists? It's just crazy. It's a it's a irrational way, but it's just someone who want is looking. I think to say, "Hey, I'm better than them," um, and it's a very unpleasant part of human nature.
0: Well, again, yeah, I, I do agree with you, and I think they are the majority. So it's the majority against the minority, and no one wants to be part of the minority. And, and I think that's a big part of
1: it. Well, I actually have a different view here. Okay. I, I actually think a lot of people on bikes want to be part of the minority that, in that it's sort of seen as, hey, this is a special thing and I and I know this and, and I've got a little niche activity here. So, you know, sometimes I do think that our bike riding world can hold itself back a little bit because um, some of the strongest supporters of it are actually – kind of worried that hey if everyone rides a bike I won't be special anymore you know which is sort of interesting because it's good to a lot of people like to have um, be special because they have something that other people look at and go you do what that's absolutely incredible what you ride your bike to work and people shake their head and they feel good about that because they're a bit standing out on their own where well, if everyone did it you wouldn't feel that special about it if you said you know like if, as I say, if you're in some of those places where over half the people ride their bike to work and you went. I ride my bike to work, people would go, oh, what's, what's the big deal? It's sort of like saying, you know, drink a glass of water. Yeah. When a lot of places when you say, I ride my bike to work, everyone looks at you and goes, you did what? You rode from Oakley to the city? Oh, my God, that's unbelievable. You know, in some people's minds that's seen as, you know, going up Mount Everest or something.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. I suppose you're right. It, it is, there is that, you know, that segment of people who are always going to want to be part of that that uh, that little group. Um, so, just just finishing up on what we were talking about with the with the helmet laws, you recently did a survey um twenty eight thousand was it twenty thousand yeah just under twenty
1: thousand people responded, which is ten times what we've had to any other survey
0: yeah, so twenty you so you did the survey and really the survey was to ask victorians uh, or no it was well,
1: it was actually open to anyone anywhere in the world, but it was Australians we didn't get a lot of people from overseas, but it was throughout Australia spread. Widely throughout Australia.
0: Okay. And the question was, uh, what do you guys, do you think uh, mandatory helmet laws should be abolished? Yep. And uh, 58% said there should be a change to helmet laws. Correct. Um, 41% said helmets should be mandatory at all times. 41% yep. said, man- said mandatory. So I'm thinking a lot of those people weren't cyclists. Um, no, the
1: vast majority of people that responded ride their bikes we didn't get a lot of response from people who aren't bike
0: riders yeah forty percent said helmets should be only mandatory when the risk is high which is pretty much where i stand yep. uh thirty percent said they would ride more often if helmets weren't mandatory yep so that's a lot of people
1: it's a lot it's a lot of people it's so very th- interesting
0: so thirty percent of uh twenty thousand that's um that's a lot of that's a lot of people
1: yeah and the thing that worries um you know, particularly the authorities or particularly like the trauma-type health people. The other interesting part is when we said to people who would, would you never wear a helmet? It was a very small proportion of people said they would never wear a helmet. So yeah. a lot of them said they would still, They bike riders feel they're able to assess the risk themselves and say, okay, I'm going down to the cafe, I'll be fine, I'll go at a low speed, but I'm going out for a training ride and I'm going to descend down a mountain. They're going to stick a helmet on. Yeah. Um
0: and that's just common sense really, isn't it?
1: It it is. And what we do know though, of course, is the biggest risk when it comes to riding your bike is from vehicles. The biggest risk is being hit by a vehicle, you know. 80% of bike crashes happen because a car a person driving a car hits a person riding a bike.
0: Now, I want to challenge on that. I want to challenge on that because 80% is a lot, right? Is there any is there any Evidence there? With yeah, that? there is. Okay. Yeah, there is. Because, yeah. uh, you know, I'm thinking... Look, I'm an experienced cyclist. So I... Th- this is actually... This is an interesting topic in itself, right? Because I'm a, an experienced cyclist and I know that when I'm riding down a, fo- a, a path and there's cars on the left-hand side, I know there's probably a chance someone's going to open their door. And I don't really... Hold, you know, dooring's a big problem and we'll, we'll cover that in a, in a little while. But... I also know just to stay out to the right a little bit, all right? And I think what I, my point that I'm getting at is, with cycling experience comes comes you know a little bit more knowledge on how to stay upright. And I think a lot of these people, it's not necessarily always the uh, the, the car drivers and the, and the vehicle drivers' fault. I think a lot of the time there's some confusion as to you know who's going to go left and. and, and. And, uh, and a lot of these people I see just doing stupid things, riding too close to cars when they're passing them, parked cars. Do you think and, – and, and, I mean, a lot of these crashes are just people falling, falling off as well, inexperienced bike riders. Do you really think it's 80%? Yeah. It's been shown around the world,
1: lots of places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's staggering, isn't it? Like it's a, it's 80% a lot. Of 80% of
0: accidents involve a car. That's well, crazy.
1: And it's the driver's fault. 80% of the crashes, it's the fall of a person.
0: So, so what's your Driving take part. on what's your take on what I just said about, about uh, you know, s- cyclists and, and just, you know, mate, uh, let's have a – we're on the Talking Chang podcast. Here. I'm going to be straight up with you. There's a lot of bunters out there. There's a lot of absolute – you know, they're not real crash hot on bikes. And I see these people riding and I almost want to go up to them and say, hey, mate, you can't do that because you're going to fall off and crash. Um, you know, I question really whether it is the car driver's fault in a lot of these situations. Um, yeah, look, it's in, it's interesting when you say about
1: people and their skill on the bike. There's no problem with having poor skill on the bike. I don't believe as long as you don't you're not doing something that's above your, uh, you sort of say, you know above your pay grade. That's when the real problem is. And, and I reckon I've seen that in the last you know ten or eleven years. I've now been working in bike riding you've seen i've seen people what i call progress so quickly through the stages you know they've been barely riding they've ridden a little bit as a kid um and then particularly you know it tends to be unfortunately a lot of people like me who are men in this age bracket you know we're 40 plus tax um they get a bike and pretty quickly they're doing some pretty extraordinary things on it you know they're riding in a bunch they're descending at speed um and that's something that they're doing after three or four years, or even you know, sometimes two or three. You know, they get a bike and they're on beach road in no time, riding in a pack. Um, it does take time to build those skills, and as you say, you do build them over time. And I, I think it's one of these, particularly from that sporting thing, where people have gone very, very quickly from zero to one hundred. Um, when in other things, you just don't go that quickly from zero to one hundred.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's, again, it's one of those things where you, you learn as you go. Um, you see a lot of these novices in, in bunches and it's just, it's a place that as an experienced cyclist you want to avoid because I see a lot of crashes in the bunches from people just doing silly things, um, which is basically a lack of experience. But when I, when I relate this specifically to, say, dooring, for example, so let's talk about dooring. So doring is, the definition of dooring is a parked car, Yep. and someone either getting in or out of their car, opening their door on a cyclist who's passing in the bike lane. Is that that fair to say? Fair enough. And did the Bicycle Network coin this phrase, dooring? Uh, I would like to think we did, but I can't imagine we did. <laughs> okay, so it's a, it's obviously a worldwide problem. Um, for a start, it's I suppose from an inter- infrastructure, if you're an infrastructure planner setting out a road, it is difficult to utilise enough space across the road so as to put people, the ability to park their cars, also put a bike lane in and then put a couple of lanes of traffic in and still have enough space to fit everything. Uh, you know, what, uh, are you interacting with the government on this? Yeah, and it's not really difficult.
1: You know, I, I know, you know, so we go back to this overseas, people from overseas come and they scratch their head and they go, why do you have the bike riders protecting the cars? why don't you have the bike riders on the inside of the cars? It's just the classic way you should build the road. It should go pedestrians, bikes, if you have space, parked cars, cars moving. Um, There's no way you should have – but we've got a lot of situations here where we've gone pedestrians, parked cars, bikes, moving cars. We've just got it the wrong way
0: around. Um, And and, and when you say we, this is an interesting point because I often think about this as I'm riding along and I'm thinking this is the most ridiculous setup I've ever seen uh, of, of a bike path on a road. And then I think, who is the person or the people or the team that are putting this together when they, when they do it? And who is it? it's a bunch of people i mean it could be
1: someone from vic roads in say in victoria um or it could be someone from the council so you know we do have a situation where there's a lot of people and a lot of traffic engineering type people who are involved with this there's a big spread of them there's a huge number um and i want i know we've done work here to try and produce best practice guides and we're back going to have another go at it and try and do more so that it's clear here's the few situations we should do, and it is difficult because there are lots of different road situations, but we should have a few that we know this is what we're aiming for. And when it comes to dooring, we do know that um, dooring, particularly in Melbourne, comes down to about four or five key streets where all the dooring happens Chapel Street, Sydney Road, um, Gertrude Street, which I ride down every day. You know, there's these few streets where the vast majority of the dooring happens, um, and on some of those. Streets is the ones we've seen, the terrible tragedies as a result of dooring. We saw a terrible one with Alberto Paul and on Sydney Road, a terrible one with James Cross on Glenfree Road. You know, there's, the dooring is confined to a few key streets, so we could make a massive um, hole in the number of doorings just by fixing those key streets, which is what we're working on. Um, St Kilda Road is another classic one.
0: So how do you fix a dooring incident? You know, you've got, let's look at the circumstances. Mum's in a hurry, pulls her car over. She's running late to pick the kids up from school. Just frantic, you know, gets out of the car. And a uh, cyclist comes past. So, you know, how do, so we've obviously got the mum that we have to sort out. What about the cyclist? Does the cyclist have a responsibility? Um,
1: look, I think you do when you're riding your bike and you should be conscious and you mentioned you're conscious of where you position yourself so you're not too close to the cars sometimes it does get tight though you know like i mentioned some of those streets where really you are pretty squeezed um and i i know personally myself and i don't think i'm the world expert on bike technique but the bits where i know i'm in a pretty tight place and it's hard for me to ride outside the dooring zone um, i'm going at an incredible slow pace and i'm really keeping my eye out what's coming in front of me so i'm thinking i should be able to stop um But as I say, the best thing we need to be able to do is we get the car on these roads, get the bike, sorry, on the inside of the parked cars, it will make a massive difference. That will certainly help. Um, But there's other technologies for other areas that have been coming in for vehicles as well. You know, there's some cars now that have technologies that do have a driver alert system. um, One so you can't open the door if something's, they see, they detect the bike rider coming and the door stops you opening it for the time it takes, which is great. We should get that stuff fitted to vehicles as well, um, as well as teaching people what's called the Dutch reach, which is basically if you're, you know, you're in your vehicle, you open the door with your left hand, so then you look over your shoulder and you see the bike rider coming as well. Um, so there's things we need to do to improve the situation for everyone. Mm.
0: Yeah, I noticed the, uh, the in in the city actually coming past uh, St. Vincent's, I'm not exactly sure of the name of the street, but there is a, they have changed it a couple of spots in the city. Where they've put the bike lane on the inside, but then I sort of think, well, what about the passenger door opening? You sort of, but I suppose every car's got a driver, so you're going to have more people opening the driver's side door, and not every car has a passenger getting out of the vehicle. So there's obviously you you limit your chances of being doored there as well. Yeah,
1: the the number of the average number of people in a car is like one point one or one point two. Yeah, it's extraordinary. The vast majority of vehicles have one person in them.
0: That's incredible in itself.
1: It's incre. It is incredible, um, and so what makes them? That, as you say, there could be a passenger situation, but it's incredibly rare.
0: So this is this is a situation where I think a lot of people don't like carpooling simply because people don't like people. People just don't like people. I mean, I got to admit, me personally, I'd rather just chill out on my on my own on the couch watching TV than than go to a party, for example. And uh, and I think people just like to be in their car, listen to their podcasts, listen to their music and have their little solitude <laughs> as they're on their miserable way to their miserable job. And I think what a lot of people don't realise is you can do that on the bike. You can just put your headphones in and ride your bike and... You
1: yeah, yeah carpooling is interesting it's never really worked um it's it's the timing thing too for a lot of people like you know maybe in the old days when you worked in one of those you know sort of sterile environments where everyone knocked off at four forty-five and you all left at four forty-five and you all got there at exactly the same time but it just doesn't work you're waiting for your person who's leaving earlier leaving later you're waiting for your neighbor it just doesn't happen that's the great thing about the bike too um you know you you can you have complete control over your time I know when it comes to you know commuting on the bike the variation in my commute on the bike one two minutes max I know exactly how long it takes and it takes the exact same amount of time and if I try and pedal harder occasionally I'll get a good tailwind it hardly makes any difference at all you control the time perfectly Um, when you know if you're on a train hot day in Melbourne it goes to pot and suddenly you're 45 minutes late in your car something happens there's a crash or something suddenly it takes another 40 minutes to get home just doesn't happen on the bike,
0: yeah. Unless what maybe you, you get a puncture, yeah. And what do you do? Well, that's true. That's a big thing. I think most people don't even know how to fix a puncture. Most, most, you know, most uh, new cyclists. <laughs> so uh, I've seen a lot of people standing on the side of the road after after getting a puncture. What do you do on the uh, crappy days through winter? What What do I do? Yeah, I just there's not many. Suck it up. Suck you know, it up. I re- I reckon,
1: like as I say, I. In, in a year, how many times do I either get home or get to work when I'm absolutely soaking wet? One, two a year. Um, not many. Wouldn't be ten. Yeah. And in the cold, well, I just put on lots of clothes. I'm, I'm a real wimp. I personally feel the cold badly, yeah. but I just put on lots of clothes. Um, beanie under the helmet sounds pretty horrific, but beanie under the helmet Decent gloves, more jackets. Off you go.
0: And so you live a fair way out of uh, in the in the suburbs. Um, That's a long commute. I don't go the whole way. I do halfway. Yeah, because
1: I live out. My commute is about twenty-four kilometers by what I'd call hardcore road, um, which is going on the most challenging roads with the most vehicles. um, Or you can go pretty much the whole Yarra Trail but that's up to 40 something kilometers. Yeah. So yeah, I go halfway.
0: Now, this is the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, you know, you're talking about the Yarra Trail and the fact that it's not a straight line, right? It's a lot of curving and a lot. And then I look at the train. So at the moment in Victoria, they are rolling out the Andrews government are rolling out this um, rail crossings where they t- where they're removing the railway crossings and they're putting overhead trains uh, in a nutshell. And so I think, okay, this is a fantastic opportunity to integrate the cycling uh, lane with the overhead, so to put the whole thing overhead together so that people can ride in a straight line. And a lot of these governments, a lot of these uh, councils, they don't understand the basic concept of a cyclist commuting to work. When you're going to and from work, you want to go in a straight line. You don't want to zigzag and turn left and turn right and stop at Am I to something here? Yeah, we're seeing that changing. Um,
1: London's done a great job. They call them in London the Cycling Super Highways um, and we, we've we got plans to build more of those, particularly in Melbourne too. This is times when you realise that this particular piece of a place to ride is about getting from A to B. It's not about stopping and meandering around the whole way. Um with the sky rails that have been built, though, the ones that have been done best have had the bikes on the ground rather than up in the air, mainly because it's just too hard to get bikes up and down all the time on the sky rail. Um, but, you know, I agree, at times they've put lots of curves in. And if you're just trying to get into the city, um, you know, you do want to be able to put your head down, pedal on, off into the city. Yeah. Um, I
0: so, suppose, so I'm not, not really necessarily talking about a sky rail, but what I am talking about is, for example, down here at the end of. Um, Glen Ferry Road, where you turn turn left onto the bike path, it uh, you know, you literally from the road you cycle on the bike path, but the bike path is suspended yeah. from the bridge. So yep. you're not on the ground, it's just a suspended thing above. And when I look at the Maribyrn on um, a rail crossing project, they could have done that. Mm. They've got the trains high above the ground, so they could have, cyclists could have sort of ridden up gradually up onto the, you know, the same sort of level and then ridden in a straight line with the train. Yeah. But instead what they've done is they've kept it on the ground, they've put zigzags in Mm. and it's almost like a a, a zigzag course that, you know, you're riding and plus you've got to stop at every second set of traffic lights. It's like you might as well just ride on the road. It's much quicker. And I think what they've done is they've had this mindset that, oh, we're just going to get mums and dads with their kids riding but they're not taking into account the commuter.
1: Yeah. We're going to see the first one, which will happen as part of the Westgate project, so the new western road that's happening. Um, there's some pretty interesting plans for there. We will see there a commuter-type um, bike route that is actually elevated. Um, it's about good. three to four kilometres, I think, um, and that's been recognised. That to try and get through that whole area, which is in that western part of Melbourne, there's a lot of commuters actually coming to the city from the western part, more than people realise, but... You go through, you've got to go through the docks area. There's a lot of truck movements um, through there, not a very, a very hospitable place to ride if you're on your bike. So that's going to be a good way to get the bikes away from particularly the truck movements in which we have, uh, again, seen one or two terrible tragedies through that area.
0: Yeah, it is. In the, uh, the western side of Melbourne, is a, is a big, it's a big truck problem really, isn't it? Um, that, you know They go through that, uh, that suburban area of Footscray and Yarraville and stuff and there is so many trucks going out through there.
1: Yeah, there is. The docks is a terrible area and trucks and bikes do not mix. It's a terrible situation and, you know, any time that happens. We've done a lot of – we're doing a lot of work and a lot of campaigning to try and improve that situation, Um, particularly as Melbourne and most of Australian cities are going through a real build boom. They're building lots of – lots of – key pieces of infrastructure, roads, tunnels underground for railways. So the truck movements are going up substantially um, as a result of that and will over the next 10 years as we try and cater for the population as it really increases. Um, So with all those truck movements, we need to do a lot of work to make sure that people on bikes and people on foot are well protected from the trucks.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, obviously the thing is with trucks is it's very difficult as a driver. I always like to put myself in the other other, other person's situation. Yeah. As a cyclist, as someone cycling, I look at mum running late for school and she's panicked, and I see this. You know, I can understand her situation as well when she flings open the door and sort of jumps out. And then I look at truck drivers and I think it must be very difficult to look in the rear view mirror or the side mirrors and keep an eye out for cyclists and and. Um, Yeah, it's not an excuse. You still have responsibilities, but I do see the difficulties in it.
1: We're running this program at the moment called Swapping Seats, which is where we're getting bike riders to see it from the truck driver's perspective and truck drivers to see it from the bike rider's perspective. And when when you sit up in the cab of a big truck and you see just how poor the visibility is, it is extraordinary they can see very, very little. Um, One of the best things we can do for trucks, and it's obviously a long time coming, is get low cab trucks. Improves the visibility substantially for truck drivers, but with the trucks we currently have, we really want to make sure that, one, the truck drivers understand that bike riders could be there, but also bike riders understand truck drivers' visibility is very poor um, and be very careful anywhere you're around a truck because you might think they can see you, whether you're at the front of the truck particularly on the left-hand side of a truck, um, often they cannot see you at all.
0: Yeah, that's that's so true. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. I did the uh, 2017 Indy Pack and so I had a lot of experience with the trucks overtaking me out on the out on the great, uh, out on the outback. Mm-hmm. And um, the trucks were pretty good. The truck drivers were fantastic. They always, at every opportunity, they overtook me on the opposite side of the road. They'd give me plenty of room. And uh, they were fantastic. The place where they had difficulty is obviously if they've got an oncoming truck and they're going in the opposite directions and they're overtaking at the same time. Cyclists need to understand that they need to get off the road in that situation. So if there's a, a truck coming in the opposite direction and a truck coming from behind, it's very difficult for those two trucks to coordinate a slowdown Mm-hmm so that they don't pass at the exact moment that they're passing the cyclist. And so I think in those situations, if you're out in the open road, you really need to get off the road.
1: Yeah, and particularly in the urban environments, left-turning trucks, they're the thing we're saying to everyone. Be so careful being on the inside of a truck turning left. Yep. It's such a interesting situation. The trucks often move out into the middle lane to turn left because, they're one, they're allowed to, and two, they need to to get around. And if you're on a bike, you might think, oh, beauty, this truck's gone slightly right, so it's going straight ahead. Um, but often they will turn left. So, anytime, particularly at an intersection, you see a, a truck, be very cautious about what we call underpassing it, which means going past the truck on the left hand side.
0: So, true. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a big danger. Do you know one thing about uh, trucks and cars when they're passing you? And, and obviously, we see the Amy Gillett Foundation, which is another bicycle advocacy, advocacy group who are um, propagating a meter matters. Um, which is to say that you know, give give cyclists at least a meter or one point five meters of room. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily the answer because I think that presents problems in its own right, and we'll discuss that. But I think one thing that I always think of is when trucks and cars are passing me in a in a potentially dangerous situation, why don't they just slow down? Why don't we have a a, a, a joint meter matters sort of. Uh, philosophy, but in a slow down philosophy. Like, why don't you just slow down? <laughs> like, if I see a mum with a pram and I'm right, I'm driving down a 60k road, 60k an hour road, I'm probably going to slow down to 30k an hour just in case she steps out in front of me.
1: Yeah, look, you know? it would be it would be wonderful. Um, unfortunately, I think so many people are always late and stressed, and they always think they have to go fast, but. Um, as you say the speed makes a massive difference if there does happen to be a crash the speed a vehicle is going the difference it makes is huge you know there's basic numbers you run which basically says you get hit by a car at 60 kilometers an hour you've got a one in 10 chance of surviving at 40 kilometers it's a five in 10 chance of surviving at 30 kilometers it's a nine in 10 chance of surviving so whenever we are we argue all the time for getting speed limits down, get the speed limits lower, makes a massive difference one to people's comfort level so they ride more, but also if something does go wrong, there's a real difference. But you know we still hear, see we hear huge opposition to this. You know when there's a trial for a forty kilometre speed limit or a thirty kilometre speed limit, people lose their minds and go, oh my god, what's it going to do to my day? It's going to be ruined. And the reality is, people around the cities are not driving that fast anyway you know in peak hour their average speed is much lower than that in any event but it does cause a lot of political wrangling but um it will make a massive difference to get the speed lower and if people just adopted that practice when they see someone go oh i better be a bit careful there and you should do that because it's a basic human thing to do
0: yeah i totally i totally agree you know as i get older i sort of you know i see situations where i can potentially see a dangerous situation with a a cyclist on the road, and then I just slow my down. So there you go. You, if you want your next slogan yep. your, for the bicycle network, I reckon it should be just slow down. <laughs> just slow down. Should Three there be
1: weeks. a um, expletive in the middle of that? Or no? <laughs> <laughs> <I> <laughs>
0: well,
1: maybe know. an adjective <laughs> of some
0: sort. Or something? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how well that'll go. But um, talking about uh, talking about you know big vehicles, uh, there was a bus driver uh, who. Drove into a low bridge in Melbourne. Mm. He uh, he seriously injured six passengers on board. So he his his bus was taller; it was three point eight meters, and he went under a three meter bridge. He was traveling at the normal speed; didn't slow down; didn't even take into account the fact that the bridge was lower than the thing, and injured six passengers. Now, the this was two and a half years ago. The court case was on. Last week, uh, his name was Jack Aston, and he went to jail. He got sentenced to six years, and so he's going to do two and a half years in jail. Now I look at this and I think the guy didn't kill anyone; he hurt a lot of people. Clearly, it was it was openly stated that it was just a, an oversight on his part, and uh, it was obviously criminal negligence. He got charged for, and yet we've had six people die this year on bikes. And I'm pretty sure a lot of the drivers didn't get charged. And I think we're seeing a lot of drivers who are... Sorry, they're getting charged, but they're not getting uh, thrown in jail. I don't see many people who kill cyclists being thrown in jail. What's your thoughts?
1: Oh, look, there are. Um, unfortunately, you know, one, part of my work is we do have involvement and we do watch those cases pretty carefully... Um, obviously, not all situations end up with the person driving a car who ends up being charged, but there are um, there's a few, been a few terrible ones um, and situations where there's been some pretty stiff penalties um, over the past few years. Um, you know, and some unfortunate couple have been our members um, who have been lost on the roads, um, and the penalties there. Um, I know we one one of our members named Julian Paul was killed by a woman called Stephanie Marr um, and she was found guilty of culpable driving, which is the most serious offence, um, and initially she got a 12-year sentence. And it was reduced on appeal, but she got a 12-year sentence. Um, so what did she do? She, was, what, she came under the category of being sleep-deprived. Um, reality, there was some unclarity about her situation, whether she'd been taking drugs or not. Um, she, when she um, unfortunately killed um, Julian, she then left the scene. Um, hid the car, went into hiding. So by the time they got her, it was hard to test her for drugs. Um, But it found she'd been awake for an extraordinarily long period of time. And um, as a result of that, she got a very, she got a significant penalty. She pleaded not guilty. Um, So as a result of that, you get no free kicks on the way through. You know, you get no reduction in your penalty um, if you plead not guilty. So she got a very significant um, penalty. Um, And there was another one, um, another, you know, one of our, members called Gordon Ibs who was killed by a fellow called Bradley as a party um and he got a significant sentence as well I can't remember exactly it was eight or nine years for dangerous driving um causing death so the it does happen um we probably see one or two of those cases go through the court a year um we saw another woman Rebecca Stewart who um that person in this occasion and Christian Aspie he wasn't killed but he was very seriously injured um she got a significant penalty as well and she was um heavily drug affected. Um, He was out on an early morning training ride around um, Lake Wenderee in Ballarat. Um, So there are the penalties there. It does happen, um, but occasionally there's officer situations when the authorities have a a job to do there and it is difficult. They do the best they can. I think they do a terrific job um, making those investigations because they are difficult and emotive. Um, And what I do say about these situations is there's no winners here. It's a terrible situation, you know, for the family who've had to um, endure loss of the loved one. Um, their pain is often extraordinary and ongoing for a long period of time. But on the other token, for the person behind the wheel who's done something, whether it's they were, and often it is pretty serious criminal behaviour, whether they are on drugs, drinking, sleep deprived, texting is a really big one. Um, their life is in a hell of a mess. Know, they're off to jail um so it's a pretty serious situation
0: yeah i mean it's a, it's it's it is terrible for all parties because at the end of the day i've been you know I'm, I'm a cyclist and i've been guilty of doing something on the phone when i should be really paying attention to the road myself so i'm going to put my hand up um and i think there's a lot of people who could probably do the same thing and then you just suddenly find yourself in that situation where you've you know killed someone or injured someone it's it's a it's such a silly mistake.
1: It, it is and it can happen fairly quickly. Mm. You know, and um, the phone is a terrible temptation for people. You know, it's this wonderful device that does all these amazing things for us, but it's like a drug. It's hard to put it away. Um, it's hard to put it down. You know, we've been having a very good chat here, which is fantastic and neither of us have looked at our phones for I don't know how long we've been talking. Um, it's pretty refreshing, but that reminds for most me, for most people in life it's sort of like, oh, what three minutes i need another hit of my phone and um for whatever reason so yeah it's in the phone the vehicle is a terrible situation
0: and and this leads me to the next thing you really these phone companies should be held accountable for people i mean look at the end of the day people using their phones in their vehicles is a big problem and so rather than putting that uh, fingerprint scanner on the next phone on the next iphone 11 Maybe they should put a, a, a set something up in, in the software where as soon as you enter your car, the phone goes into no-use mode. Yeah, look,
1: we, we suggested that in the middle of last year. Um, we came out and said all phones should have blocking technology so that once you get in the car, they don't work. Um, front page of the paper. Yep. People went crazy you're crazy, this is incredible, what are you thinking? Um, the technology exists, there's lots of different technology companies who all approach us afterwards and said, will you back our product, will you back our product? Um, but when we suggested it, people would just came out with all the, of course I call them the what-ifs, well what if you know, you're on the way to the hospital and your wife's about to have a baby and you need to use your phone, you know, what if all these extreme situations? And we're just like, we'll just pull over and make a call. You know, so we did suggest blocking mobile phone, blocking technology and it caused a hell of a stink. But it was yeah. good fun because, it, seriously, it's a real problem and we should just be able to hold it together.
0: Yeah, I think um, maybe this is, this is very similar to helmet, you know, mandatory helmet laws and mandatory seatbelt laws and things. So maybe what the companies could do, like Apple, for example, is to roll out a, a voluntary button that you press where you, um, where you can disable your phone. You know, there. I mean, there is at the end of the day, there is airplane mode. Yeah. But it's it's airplane mode, right? So people think, oh, I can only use that when I get on a plane. So you know, driving mode. Mm-hmm. So there could be a button where, and and people can voluntarily do it. They can put their car and you know, and see what happens.
1: Yeah, I agree. There's more that needs to be done in that area because it's a the distraction is huge, um, and it's significant. You know, it's it what it does. People take their eyes off the road, and there was a case which was recently. um went through the courts again where a woman took her eyes off the road and she said she wasn't using her phone but she was connecting the Bluetooth for the music. She said 10 seconds. Eyes off the road for 10 seconds.
0: 10 seconds is a long time.
1: You count to 10. One day sit in your car when it's not going, count to 10. It's incredible how far you go. It's amazing. Well,
0: especially when you're doing 100k an hour. I know. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's a big problem. Um, So... there's some new laws that have been introduced into Victoria in July 2017. Talking about phones, um, can you I- explain what? I mean, was there some sort of liaison? Was there some sort of trade-off here? What, what was happening here when these laws were introduced? Who was communicating, advising? Was it you guys?
1: Well, you've actually got me. What are the laws?
0: <laughs> well, see, so in, in in July um, 2017, there was the no. So there was all these new laws introduced um, for cyclists. Um, so you're not allowed to you're not allowed to touch your phone on the bike. And if you even touch your phone uh, while you're riding a bicycle, it's you get a four hundred and sixty seven dollar fine, which is the equivalent to what drivers get when they're talking on their phones. Yeah, which is fair enough. Um, but if you have it in a quad lock mount or some sort of mount on your bicycle and you don't touch it you're allowed to use your phone. Yep. Um, so there were, yeah, there were that, that was one of the laws. Um, there was a few other laws. There was one, uh, you're allowed to now ride in the bus lane. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. I do that remember these ones, yeah. That was the other one. Yep. So in Victoria, you, you weren't allowed to, and so yeah. you are riding in these bus lanes back in the day and you'd have these buses absolutely going off at you, mm. um, which I just think is just stupid. You should be able to ride in the bus lane. It's, oh, look...
1: Yeah, bus lane. I've mixed mixed views about that. Look, in some ways, I, I do understand it, but putting buses and bikes together, it's um, it's not the best solution. We've got a, you know, whatever a bus weighs, ten tons or something. It's it's enormous. A- as a way to say we're going to solve the places to ride, we're going to let bikes go in the bus lane. It's a pretty poor way to treat bikes, I think. To so, say yeah, you can now ride amongst the buses pretty frightening piece of um equipment to ride amongst but i get there's less traffic in the bus lane than elsewhere so it's trying to maximize use of the space but um we shouldn't use as as an excuse for building better places to ride
0: that that is true i think uh, i'm specifically thinking about punt road punt roads um should be renamed to another word um, because it is such a very busy road in in melbourne but um (laughs) but Punt Road has a a very big bus lane on the far mm-hmm. left hand side, and then you've got your three or four lanes of traffic. And what they're expecting you to do prior is to ride on that on the on the right of the bus lane in the traffic, and so have buses shooting up your left while you've got cars shooting down yeah. your right, and that's just completely impractical and unsafe. And uh, so, so to get over in that bus lane now is, is a big thing. But so there are so the bicycle network in Australia is a uh, is. is nationwide uh, looks after victoria um you know obviously there's a big big move in tasmania i see a lot of social media coming out of bicycle network tasmania uh, there are other bicycle advocacy groups so there's amy the amy gillett foundation and they are big they really coined the phrase "a meter matters or and or 1.5 meter matters what's the bicycle network stance on that And do you guys get along or do you do you collab <laughs> geez we'd like to, i'd like to you know i'd say uh
1: well, it's kind of you hear me sigh Okay. yes sometimes the bike groups get along sometimes they don't um i, I do think it's a problem if we're going to move bike riding forward we really do need bike people to work better together um, it's not a highly collaborative world which is really disappointing um you know I, I think about other worlds I've worked in you know I used to work in footy um, and I used to work at a footy club I used to work at Carlton footy club and my equivalents at other clubs were my friends and colleagues and we chat and speak and you know obviously we competed for things but you would think you know Carlton and Collingwood footy club Carlton and Essendon supposedly hate each other but I could bring my equivalent at those clubs and talk to them at any time and have a you know a very open and friendly chat it's not that easy in bikes People in bikes seem to me there's a lot of history. Um, I've been eleven years and I find out things every day. Oh, this person doesn't like you because of something that happened twenty five years ago. And I'm like, it spins my mind. Um, but I find out about it from time to time and I we try and build the bridges as best we can and say, hey, let's do things together. Um and you know, we've been as guilty as anyone, you know, we talk about the um, the AGF's campaign. You know, at the start, organisationally, we didn't support it, um, minimum passing distance. We were supportive of the existing law. And I think we made a mistake there. And we've come out and said we've made a mistake and we're now on board with it and we're doing as best we can to try and make sure we get the law through. It would be great if it was uniform throughout Australia. It's still a bit messy. Um, And then also make sure that on the back of it too we have a good enforcement and education program because we've certainly seen that in, um, you know, there's a place in England in the West Midlands where the police have done an amazing job of really um, making sure that there's a significant impact. Um, So we've come out and said that, but people still don't forgive you. You know, they don't forgive you easily. Um, And I I would have someone every day come up to me and say, you don't support the um, minimum passing distance law. And I say, yeah, we do. And they go, well, you haven't done it forever, so I'm never forgiving you. I'm like, oh, okay, well, look, we thought we put our hand up. We said we made a blue. We've tried to fix it. Um, but, yeah, it's it's it sits ingrained for a long time in bikes. People, bike riders are like elephants, have long memories.
0: Yeah, it's it's so true. It's so true. And this is one of the, the, the things about the bike, the cycling world that's frustrated me for a long time is that, you know, people have got their own silos and what we need to do is collaborate more. We all need to just get together and for the betterment of, you know, for our safety. Yeah, which is really where we've tried
1: to get through by saying, you know, I, I keep saying there's no silver bullet, it's all these bits put together that matters and people often have a single issue that's very important to them and very dear to their heart. Um, and what I think when someone says, well, that's not the most important thing, what they hear is that doesn't matter, when really what we – I'm trying to get to more and saying – hey, people in bikes, let's all come together and we all have different views. But in the end, we're all trying to get to the same end goal here. We're all trying to make sure, one, more people ride bikes, and two, when you are riding a bike, and we're all much better off. Um, so we've got the same end goal here and we're just trying to get to it through some slightly different ways, but let's work on what we um, agree on, not what we disagree on. But yeah. I've been at it for 10 or 11 years and I don't think I'm – some days, it's another one of those days where I go, oh, I don't think I'm any closer to solving that problem.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, you do, so in a, you d- just to summarise, you do support the meter matters.
1: Yeah, we do. Yeah, we've yeah. supported minimum passing distance now for it'd be three or four years. We changed our position on that one. Um, and Victoria is the one state at the moment that doesn't have a minimum passing distance law um, and just needs to get on with it. Any situation where Australia has different laws all over the place, it's pretty messy Um, and Victoria just needs to get on with it and then also, as we say, back it up with a good enforcement and education program as well.
0: Okay, so why aren't they getting on with it?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. If I boiled it down, I would say the reality is the current government has seen bike riding as a way to lose votes. That's what I think. They listen to what I call the loud minority There's a loud minority of people who say, you know, oh, bloody cyclists, oh, bike riders are a pain, get them off the road. They're very loud about it um, and that's what I think the government hears. Bike riding, bike riders generally are fairly quiet. We call them the quiet minority um, and we need more bike riders because, sorry, the quiet majority, I should say, because there's a majority of people who do ride bikes When we ask the number of people, how often do you ride a bike? It's a huge proportion of the population who ride once a year or once a month not a huge proportion who ride every day, but there are a huge proportion of people who do sit on a bike at some stage during the year. Um, and what we're really trying to do is get this quiet majority to stand up and say, no, this is important, and say to the government, if you bring these laws in that are supportive of bike riding, um, no, one will, you won't lose votes over this. You'll actually win votes. Um, and things will be, it'll be better for you and better for everyone else. And that's been the big challenge, I think.
0: Yeah. We, we've just recently had the Andrews government uh, re-elected. Um, wh- I mean, what is the Andrews government like towards cyclists? And and is the alternative better?
1: Um, we haven't seen a lot from the Andrews government, unfortunately. You know, we certainly saw in the election campaign a couple of little things here and there. You know, they spoke about doing St Kilda Road, which has been on the cards for a long time, though. Um, a couple of... Um, you know, better pass up in the northern parts of Melbourne, but not a lot. Um, so it's really the time now to... S- the Andrews government now obviously has a pretty clear position. They got re-elected by a landslide, in effect, you know, what you would say. So now's their chance to make these brave decisions. If, some, if they feel they're going to have a few people annoyed because they do a few things for bike riders, it won't matter. They've got enough of a buffer to take these chances um, and over the next four years, it's really time the andrews government to stand up and say we know this is part of the future we know it has to be part of the future we know people want this so we need to make things better for bike riders
0: yeah and and that and that's and you're talking mainly infrastructure um helmet laws things like that
1: yeah it's a whole it's a whole bunch of things it's as we say it's safe places to ride it's supportive laws for bike riders it's speed reductions there's a whole number of things we need to do to make us turn us into a place where lots of people ride their bikes
0: Talking about self, safe places to ride, there's a lot of urban little velodromes out in the burbs of, mm. uh, of Melbourne. There's the Brunswick Velodrome, which has just been refurbished. Uh, I think it was the Brunswick Velodrome. Yep. But there's one out at Noble Park mm. that at the moment we've got uh, the local council trying to demolish it yep. and they want to put soccer grounds. Yep. What's the Bicycle Network's take on that?
1: Yeah, look, that's – any time you're taking away pieces of bike – places to ride, it's a bad thing. And we've certainly come out and said, no, you shouldn't do this. Now, I do understand that um, all our councils, they're under pressure for for leisure, leisure facilities. You know, they can't get enough soccer fields, enough football fields, basketball courts and all that sort of stuff. But it shouldn't come at the expense of bike riding. And, you know, these velodromes are historical things. They have a lot of um, interest in them. And they're a great place for people who are learning to ride. You know, they don't, they're do not they not just a, a um, thing for people who are elite doing track bike riding this is a place for kids to come if you're going to learn to ride a bike for the first time you know we all traditionally learn somewhere usually down the local school is where people get taken but if you're in that area that's another good place for people to come and learn to ride so look that's an, an unfortunate situation um and i'd like to think that that fight's not over and that's going to stay but um it looks a bit grim um and you'd like to think the council though work out that no this is a
0: good thing and people riding bikes is important you know, as I said to you earlier, I like to look at all the all the sides of the story. So looking at the cyclist perspective, cyclists haven't been riding on that Noble Park velodrome because it's absolutely deteriorated. Yeah. There's cracks in it, there's lumps and bumps in it to the point where you, it's unrideable. Yeah. Right, so obviously when the council says no one's been riding on it, there's, there's good reason for it because it hasn't been maintained. But the other side of the story is I can totally understand that they want to put more soccer grounds and things that, are, that the local community are probably going to use more of. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is there is those two sides of the story. I think what they need is just decent education in, once you put a velodrome in, in the centre of the velodrome, you could actually utilise that as a, as a BMX track or even a cyclo-cross track. Yeah. And so I think... They really need someone to go in there at the next meeting and say look this is this is what could be done. You could do the soccer grounds or you could do this and utilize that area effectively, yeah,
1: and you talk about the quality of the track, you look at what they did with Brunswick, like that's an amazing facility, like it's incredible, and you see you build something that people want to use, and they'll they'll go and they'll use it so but if you don't maintain it and let it go into poor disrepair, well." And then say, well, no one's riding on it. Well, of course they're not riding on it, it's in disrepair.
0: Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So just just finishing up, um, obviously Vic Roads and there's a lot of I, I've actually just going back to what we were talking about about the number of bicycle advocacy advocacy groups, sort of there's you know, Amy's bicycle network, who else who else have we got on the the big players?
1: Um, well, obviously, Cycling Australia is a big player in terms of – when we talk about – the we look at the number of members a little bit too. Um, you know, there's sort of cycling – roughly Bicycle Network, we've got just under 50,000 members. Cycling Australia, are about 25. Bike Queensland is a big organisation. They've got about 18,000, 19,000 members. They're the third biggest in terms of member base. Um, so they tend to be the one. But then we have a lot of advocates who speak on behalf of bike um, – issues on various issues that could be a single issue so or it could be one that is doing lots of things as well so there's lots of people in the in the in this world
0: so you know obviously cycling australia they're focusing on getting olympians that's how they get their funding is that they need to produce olympians uh, well, <laughs> so there's a big focus yeah there. well
1: y- yes and no i mean look they do but by the same token um or everyone through that sport thing their job is to get more humans moving Similarly to ours, Um, now sport has gone through this issue that they're trying to grapple with um, and there's some of the sports and we call them the non-permission sports of which bike riding is one. Well, there's a whole lot of people doing this that aren't actually a club member. They're never going to race, they're never going to join a club. People do that when they're cycling, riding bikes, swimming, running, skiing, surfing. You know, you you go down to the surf and see the number of people there who are really good surfers, they're never going to surf in a competition. They just do it because they like it and it's fun. Bike riding is very much the same. So that's the real struggle that the sporting bodies have grappled with because their model has always built, been built around. You sign up to the club, you pay them a registration fee, you're then in their system and, you know, it's a very formal old school system and the world's changed like that. People are saying, that's not how I want to interact, that's not what I want to do. I want to be able to do what I want to do when I want to do it to fit in with my lifestyle. That's been the big challenge I think that sports in Australia is still really grappling with.
0: Yeah, you know, one thing I'm always sort of frustrated with with Cycling Australia is they do have that that high level competitor uh, in their in their focus. I don't see Cycling Australia do doing much in terms of the getting the commuter, looking after the the average cyclist. Uh, would Would you agree with that? Well,
1: they think I think they think about it, but it's hard to get your head around for that reason. That the basic model is you sign up to be a you know, to be a club member and then it sort of filters up through the classic tiered structure that we see in sport Um, and it is interesting because, you know, people intersect on bikes. Like I say, why do people ride a bike? There's kind of, I say, there's basically three reasons. You know, one, they're just doing it to get around. They're not thinking that much about it. It's just moving around. Another one, they do it just to enjoy themselves. Bike riding's fun. It's great fun. And the other people are testing themselves. You know, they are saying... I want to do a sport, I want to test myself. The Cycling Australia body has tended to focus much on most on the people who are testing themselves, not worrying as much about the people who are just enjoying themselves or the people who are just trying to move around. Um, when reality, I know I think from the sport perspective, how do you start playing a sport? You generally start doing it by just enjoying yourself, you know. You don't play Test cricket unless you've gone out in the backyard and, and played as a little kid or something. You know that's generally what you have to start in these other areas, um, and that's where I think they probably miss the opportunity of understanding that this grassroots level of people who aren't doing it to, um, you know, they they probably have no thoughts of ever, you know, riding in the Olympics or going to the tour or you know, going to the national championships or something like that. Um, but that's where they're going to find those people, because yep. out of that they all filter their way up to the top if they get bitten enough by the bug that they love it that much, or they happen to have an incredible talent, that's how you find them.
0: You know it's funny you say this because uh, I, I hear from local clubs when the cyclists rock up, you know that, that Cycling Australia are taking a chunk of money for this and they want fees for this and and so then I think about funding. well, I've heard that you know Cycling Australia get their funding because they focus on you know producing elite Olympians um and and plus they also have memberships so then then i think about your funding i mean you you produce a lot of grand fondo type rides you've done these for years is that the bulk of your funding or is it from memberships
1: yeah we work basically 50% from events we run um 25% from membership and 25% from other things and you say, what are the other things? They're essentially some government support for some of our programs, like ride to school and ride to the train station, um, some corporate support. And then we have two other really what I'd call entrepreneurial businesses. One, we run a bike parking service, so we sell the bits of metal, design, sell and install bike parking, mainly under buildings in city-type areas. And then we also do bike counting where we count bikes. We gather the data and we provide that data um, to councils to help them with their planning as well.
0: Sounds good. Diversifying, um, you know, talking about this bike parking, it is uh, that's a, it's a big problem. Obviously, having bikes stolen and and stuff. I mean, is this a, this bike parking obviously is a very secure way to do it? And are there any recommendations on how people can not have their bikes stolen when they when they go to work?
1: Yeah, look, um, there's a, there's kind of the three places where you have your bike. You either have it at home, um, you either have it on the street, or you have it locked up at your work or somewhere like that or maybe at a train station um no doubt the key thing is put a d-lock on your bike that's the best way because it's hardest for a person to get through the d-lock but you know and i know someone said to me carry a d-lock what am i getting ready for armed combat it's a, it's a heavy bulky thing it's annoying it's hard to carry it's annoying too. to carry yeah. um but um that's no doubt one key thing and it's very interesting you know we're doing some work trying to think about bike parking at the moment and what should it be like on the street because, you know, and I did a little exercise where I just took photos for a week of bikes parked all over the place wherever I could see them and over the time, I was like, over the course of a week, I was like, I was like one of the things was, what's the most expensive bike I could find parked on the street? Right? The most expensive bike for a week of looking I could find on the street was an Avanti that would probably retail for 1200 bucks. right? Yep. nothing more expensive in a week then i thought oh I now i have a look for cars parked on the street and i found a two hundred fifty thousand dollars car in two minutes people just their bikes they won't park them on the street because they're so worried about them getting pinched um yeah. but it tends to be if you have an old clunker then you'll leave it on the street um so yeah well, that's a problem
0: it is a problem and i remember riding my very expensive $4000 mountain bike into the library in the city so the main what's the main mm. library there the, yeah, um, the state library state yeah. library in the city there parked my bike out the front locked it up on a chain very thick chain came out and it was gone not only mm. was the bike gone but the chain and lock were gone and i was told by a police officer that there's there's groups that specifically go around targeting little zones like this is you know have you had discussions with the authorities on this problem
1: yeah we have and it's a terror like when your bike's stolen too I, fortunately i've never had it but I, we know emotionally it's so upsetting for people to come out and your bike's gone because for many people their bike they love them it's probably the same with your yeah. bike it's their pride and joy i was devastated um, everyone is always devastated um and you know we know we we talk and how do we reduce bike theft and we try and look at it but you know it's a sad part of life isn't it that that's someone's business. Your, your business is, um, you know, producing compelling content that hopefully this becomes some. Someone's business is going around stealing bikes and selling them. Incredible.
0: It's unreal, isn't
1: it? It is, you know. Surely you could do something better with your life.
0: Yeah. No, just incredible. Craig, um, I said this would go for an hour. <laughs> it's nearly an hour and a half now. And I'm sure you've got things to do. So I want to th- ask you a lot more questions, but maybe we could do a, a take two at some stage. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, no worries. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great fun. Absolute pleasure. And uh, we'll see you hopefully in version two.
1: All right. Wonderful.